action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We are continuing our celebration of 21st century horror with The Killing of a Sacred Deer, directed by the Greek maestro himself, Yorgos Lanthimos. Your favourite Greek director. Well, the only Greek director I know of, but he is my favourite <laughs> Greek director. So this film, heart surgeon Stephen, played by Colin Farrell, has a strange friendship with a young boy called Martin, played by Barry Keegan, who seems to have some sort of emotional hold over Stephen. Martin places some sort of curse over Stephen's family, resulting in Stephen having to make some very hard decisions. Joshua, have you seen this before? I have not seen this before. I remember when it came out and there was a big hoo-ha you know it was it was I think it was at Cannes it was at various film festivals and it kind of had this uh, uh, this big buzz around it it was very divisive it was Yorgos Lanthimos coming off the back of his English language debut The Lobster and I kind of I did want to go and see it I just ended up not going to the screening because it just looked so austere and it looked so art house and I think that the the week it was showing I just was not in the mood to watch depressing cold as ice art house films it was basically not on anywhere i had to go to cineworld in fulham to go see it and i never go to cineworld in fulham Fulham. because fulham is fucking miles away from me nice area (laughs) but it is fucking miles away so i had seen it before and i was Uh. a big fan of the lobster loved the lobster i appreciated the alps i I Mm. don't think the alps is a film you can kind of say oh i I, I really want to watch the Alps. <laughs> so I that's, appreciate so the that's Alps. what his debut, his Greek language debut or? Um, no, I think Dogtooth or there, maybe there was one before Dogtooth and then Dogtooth, then the Alps or maybe the Alps and then Dogtooth. Either way, uh-huh. those are his big Greek films. And then he did the, the Lobster, but then he did The Favourite. And I love mm. The Favourite. It was my film of 2019. It was. Favourite's brilliant. And actually having seen The Favourite before watching The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I felt more prepared for what was going to be delivered. You know, I think if I'd gone in and watched Killing of a Sacred Deer without having seen anything by Yorgos Lanthimos, I would have been very confused and kind of slightly like I'm on the outside of the joke in some ways. But I feel this one, I feel The Killing of a Sacred Deer is closer to the lobster than it is to the favorite yeah i could definitely see that yeah like the favorite feels like uh, lanthimos being more mainstream more accessible the humor Mm. is more obvious you know the humor is very overt whereas the humor in killing of a sacred deer is kind of cringe am i supposed to be laughing humor (laughs) is very different i think but even the delivery of the actors is so Mm. different in the favorite compared to killing of a sacred deer and the lobster and the Alps and Dogtooth. Right. There's a there's a distance. There's a everyone just seems really indifferent, even in moments of high tension or high comedy or high passion. They just seem really indifferent. Whereas in the favourite, the actors are actually emoting. The characters rather are emoting, and and it mm. doesn't seem as indifferent or as removed as this film. 
This film is very yeah. cold. Yeah, like the favourite has a, a warmth to it and a sense of real real humans experiencing something. Whereas yeah. Killing of a Sacred Deer, I was really thrown off at first by the tone of it in terms of the the choices that were made by the actors. So I, I was like, is Barry Keegan's character autistic? Because the way they're talking, he seems like he might be autistic. And then, but preceding that, you had a conversation between Stephen, the, the surgeon and his colleague where they're talking about their watches. Yeah. Um, and like the best kind of watch to have, is it a leather strap or a metal strap and that kind of stuff. And <laughs> I was just very... like, is everybody in this film autistic? And it was just very unusual. Um I'll do you yeah. one better. Why is Gamora? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's. But once I'd got, once I'd realised this was actually part of this world that Lanthimos has created, I was like, oh, okay. How long did it take you to acclimatise? I mean, it took me about the first twenty twenty five minutes of the film to really suss out. Right, okay, everybody is, everybody is talking like this. Everybody is talking in sort of correct perfect english um and but like in a in a really unemotional way so they're, they're talking on the phone it's like okay goodbye and then they just walk away and it's like almost every line is delivered on the same level mm. it's like really flatly spoken the but, same way the same yeah. way this we passed it the same way the same way yeah. it's really bizarre but it kind of it kind of works. Like, you know, I can see why people would absolutely hate it. And for me, I did find it sort of a, a bit of a narcoleptic aid. Like it did start to lull me off. Into I'm, sleep. I mean, I'm because I had seen The Lobster at the time when mm. I first saw The Killing of Sacred Deer, I kind of knew what I was going in for. I love it. I love this kind of cold aspect oh, yeah. to filmmaking sometimes. I like that it's completely removed from real life. I like that kind of cold, removed sheen over everything. Well, you love you love extreme style. I think even it, you know yeah. if it's extreme as in really in your face, or if it's extreme as in extremely pared back. Um, and I think this film is like peak Rob. It's like the most <laughs> Rob film we've actually covered on the podcast. It's so pretentious. It may be. It's so artistic and cold. It may be because we haven't yet covered any Lynch, and we've only we've only flirted a little with one Kubrick I think we've only done one Kubrick yeah. we did Barry Lyndon we didn't do 2001 oh we did two we? then we've done Barry Lyndon and we've done 2001 uh, right yeah so I mean this is this is very Kubrickian you've got the gliding down the corridors you've got the kind of yes. overhead angles looking down on the characters you've got that real extreme style it's like very manicured it's very well put together yeah, it's it's definitely, and it's got the classical music, which obviously that's a huge Kubrick kind of hallmark. Huge. Is to have those choral, choral sounds occurring against this very austere images. What do you think of the cast? We've got Colin Farrell, we've got Nicole Kidman, we've got Barry Keegan, and we've got Batgirl herself, Alicia Silverstone, in an extended cameo. I was so happy when Alicia Silverstone turned up. She's so great. Like she's known for being bubbly old Cher from Clueless. And then she comes, she comes into this and you're like, holy crap, that's Alicia Silverstone. And what is she doing to Colin Farrell's thumb? You know, she starts sucking on his thumb and talking about how perfect his hands are. Um, I think 
that's that's the most impressive thing about this film is the consistency between the performances you know it's it must be so difficult when you've got such a specific vision as Lanthimos clearly has to be to be able to convey that to each of your actors individually and for them to find the same delivery the same tone the same way of interacting with each other isn't that directing it's it's always said you're a conductor and making sure everyone's on the same page in terms of tone that is Mm. the job Mm mm-hmm yeah, Otherwise, yeah, you end up with with a film where someone's over here doing a big old, big old Nicolas Cage performance, and someone's over here doing a really quiet, whispery Ed, Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> I just, I just want to be the Danish pastry. <laughs> I'm really, really like colin farrell when he's in these indie films he's the sort of Mm. actor that loves to really sink his teeth into a character he disappears in this um, partly because he's got that enormous beard but he (laughs) yeah but it's it's weird how he's still he's retained his irish accent and yet there's pretty much no trace of colin farrell in the performance it's Mm. so controlled um you know he barely his face barely moves it's it's all very much in the eyes um, yeah, he's he's fantastic, but I he's think a brilliant Barry actor. Barry Keegan is even better. He was brilliant in in the Lobster. Yeah, again, Irish accent, bit of facial hair, but he also allowed himself to put a bit of weight on because usually with Colin Farrell, you would expect him to be not necessarily ripped and toned to Zac Efron levels, but definitely you know he's he's up. He is a matinee heartthrob that can act phenomenally. Yeah. I think he's kind of flown under the radar because he he came he, you know he kind of was in that he was in Tigerland in two thousand and then he did Phone Booth which I rewatched last night three oh really it still holds up Colin Fowler is brilliant he is he's, brilliant in that film yeah I think I think that his really his really bit high profile blockbusters like Daredevil and Alexander they kind of tarnished the Farrell Black brand slightly Total Recall. if you watch. Total Recall. He yeah, was in Minority like, Report. He was good in Fright Night. That Flawless the Fright accent. Night. He does an American accent really well. Yeah. Which is he strange because not all Irish people can. Michael Fassbender can't do an Irish... Uh, can't do an Irish accent. Can't do an, can't Irish, do an Irish accent. accent. <laughs> he just can't. Can't do any accent. He's actually Brazilian. Yeah. People don't know that. Michael Fassbender is Brazilian. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, Nicole Kidman. She's never crap. She's not, is she? And she's, she's never she's... crap. She can be in shit movies, but she is never, ever shit. Yeah, and in this, she's got her her natural hair. I think she often wears a wig. In this, she's got her natural hair. She hasn't got hardly any makeup on. Well, it's... actually, no. She is naturally bald. <laughs> she actually has no hair. Like she has but, negative. Oh, that's how good she is. Negative amount hair. She usually always has to have eyebrows stuck on <laughs> so here this is not this is fake news i feel <laughs> you prove it <laughs> it's not fake news it's alternative facts um uh, this reminds me of how cold and removed she was in certain aspects of eyes wide shut which i haven't seen but i have seen birth and she's fantastic in birth as well that very birth. similar yeah very similar kind of, of You've never heard of birth? 
No, I mean, I've heard of the concept, but I've never heard of a film of it. <laughs> She's great in it. It's, a, it's basically about her, I think her husband dies and then she thinks that he's been reincarnated in this young boy. And it, it becomes oh, that this old really, excuse. That yeah, old this excuse. really uncomfortable Yeah, I've heard that. Friendship. I've heard that. Mm, yeah, that old <laughs> excuse. Wow, that sounds like a family yeah. drama. <laughs> I just love that she takes risks. I just love that she she does just go for like she fought for this role she heard about it from Yorgos Lanthimos mm. and she was like I really want to play this fucking role give it to me give and me the bloody role it. just give me the, the role, role will you throw it on the barbie <laughs> I don't think she's like that <laughs> she's the only one who struggles to tamp down the emoting she's she's too good an actress and Barry Keegan oh my god how that is guy. he not a huge 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 Timothy Chalamet level star he hasn't got the same hair. Mm. If you had to, it's the Samson thing, hair. isn't it? But he's yeah. he's brilliant. He was in seventy one as mm. basically he doesn't speak uh, in that role. But was he, he in is, Dunkirk, he was in Dunkirk, but he doesn't speak in seventy one, and he is terrifying. Mm. So he's intimidating, got such an intensity, natural intensity. He's got that Irish charm. Then he was in Dunkirk. I haven't mm. seen Calm with Horses yet. No. He was meant to be in Why the Last Man. You know that one? Oh, yeah. The comic, comic book adaptation. series about a guy called Why who, for whatever reason, is the last man alive and the mm. rest of the world is populated by women and his pet monkey. Um, but he nothing came of it. He was, and they cast he was Will Smith instead. But he's in this Marvel TV show that hasn't emerged either and... What's his name? Oh, right. Bodyguard Man is in it. What's his name? Richard. Richard. Ar- not Richard Armitage. Richard. Roundtree? Shaft? No. Richard. <laughs> Richard know. Osborne from Point the Celebrities? No. Who is it? What's his name? Richard. Oh, let me find. It's not, it's not a TV Game show. Game of Thrones it's boy. It's Richard Madden and it's, the, it's Eternals, the movie, which has been delayed. Here's a question. Why no, Stephen... I want to ask you a question. Okay, go on then. I've say got go a on. very important question right, for here's you. Here's a question. Don't you be using my questions. Go on then. <laughs> Is Colin Farrell God? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't have... think he is. One of my questions is, is Martin God? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Colin Farrell is God because he's so he's so fallible and God by its very nature is infallible. But Martin has Martin is the one with this power who he can switch on and off. But is is not Martin the devil and Stephen Colin Farrell is God? You know, the devil's holding him accountable for what he's done. But that's not what the devil does. The devil doesn't have any mm. power. That's the whole point. Well, that's why he gets other people to do stuff for him. So he can't kill anyone himself. He has to get Stephen to choose to kill somebody instead for him. That could go some way to suggest that Martin's the devil and he's a trickster. Mm. But I wouldn't say that means Colin Farrell is God because if the devil can trick God, then that would make Martin God. Because Mm. the devil is a fallen angel. The devil can't Mm. have the power over God. He or she, it, they, undermine God's power. Mm. Is that the point of the devil in general terms? I just think the question of God is quite interesting because he, you know, within the hospital, the surgeon 
through science and medicine, has basically become God. He has the power to save people, or she has the power to save people. Mm. Um, so in that sense, they're almost like temporarily godlike figures where for the moment that they're operating on somebody, they do have the power to, to save or stop life. But it's not always successful, and that was the whole point of Martin's father. They couldn't yeah. save him. Yeah. But then Stephen wouldn't take responsibility. He blames his friend. Mm. Exactly. A surgeon will never kill someone, only an ethicist will. It's like I know what you did last summer when they decide to hide the body rather than own up to their crime and then they have to pay for it <laughs> when a guy with a hook comes after them. It's, you know. That old story again. <laughs> that old chestnut. For me, it's more likely that Martin is the one with the godlike powers. He's punishing according to the rule of punishing for the father's sins. So the family are being punished because of Stephen's sins. Mm. and he has this omnipresent power and he can switch it on and off because at one point he sort of switches it off so Kim, the daughter, can get mm. out of bed and look out into the uh, the car park from, what, like, 10 stories up in the hospital. Yeah. So it seems that Martin has the, the godlike power. Yeah, I think that's that's where I it kind of slightly lost me because I didn't really understand the rules of the reality that was, we were being shown. So when she was able to get up randomly, walk around, and when the son Bob does as well, um, I found it confusing. And no, Bob doesn't. Bob wants to, but he falls out of bed. No, when he when he first gets taken to hospital. Oh yes, yes. He falls down at the at the foot of the escalator. So I didn't oh, really yes. understand what the rules were, and then when you know, in the final moments when Stephen takes the choice away from himself by basically just shooting at random to see which family member he hits. That's where the, that's where the comedy comes in. Um, that's when I was like, but then how does Martin know that he's actually fulfilled his end of the pact? But if you then say, oh, well, it's supernatural, then it's like, oh, okay, he just knows innately. He well, knows. I, th- I think it's just as simple as Martin can give and take. He can put mm. the curse on. He can take the curse away. Yeah. But it's almost the least important part. It's a MacGuffin, isn't it? It's yeah. there in order to see how Stephen then reacts. It's, a, a, you know, much like The Witch, this is a family drama. And it just so happens that the family drama is a curse. Mm. I kind of read it as a bit of a parody of sort of American suburban life. You know, everyone's walking around seemingly half asleep um nobody feels like a, a fully alive human being and it's almost like the film is satirizing that idea of the perfect american family and then destroying it essentially sounds like my 30s <laughs> you're not american <laughs> i can self-identify as american thank you very much <laughs> the punishments they feel like plagues there's a lack of mobility and paralysis mm. there's the lack of an appetite hunger and famine and it's it seems like a plague of the firstborn mm. yeah and then the bleeding eyes is obviously the bleeding eyes but also very biblical in that christ-like the anna played by nicole kidman kisses martin's feet which is very mm. biblical oh yeah very very biblical in the sense that the apostles washed jesus's feet before he was murdered before he was crucified my um mm. my knowledge of 
the Old Testament, the New Testament is um, very, very small. I think it's that, is that what makes it a horror film? You know, the, there's the debate about, is it a horror film? Is it a black comedy? You know, what, why, are we, why are we covering this in our 21st century horror series? I think it's very indicative of this new so-called elevated horror. Mm. Where in the Venn diagram of everything this film is, horror is quite a big piece and it's sort of horror seen through the prism of a family drama or a strange cold thriller it's not jumping out at dark corners everything's very lit it's very lit it's very brightly (laughs) lit at times you have the, the horrible glare of the light in the hospital rooms and then mm-hmm. the house is seemingly i mean you could say it's a haunted house type house it's got that mid-century american feel to it but mm. it's very warmly lit it's a very it's a very inviting house it's not dilapidated in any way but it also it's all yellows and yellow is the color of madness is it so yeah it is you've got yellow hair <laughs> I'm mad. I think that it's interesting that the film doesn't declare itself as horror in even the first 40 minutes. I think we only discover what is actually afoot, as you might say, when Martin tells Stephen what he has to do. That's sort yeah. of 40, 45 minutes in. So that's Something almost like that, a half yeah, like through the film. 48 minutes, I think I clocked it. Yeah. And from that point, the film literally descends you know, they go into the basement of the house, which is where yeah. Stephen keeps Martin captive. And you, you start to get the horror imagery of the children crawling along the floor. And, um... We had a dog that was so <laughs> old, its back legs would temporarily stop working. Oh, So I'd be like in the kitchen chopping or whatever. And at the corner of my eye, I'd see our Shih Tzu crawling towards dragging its hind legs crawling towards made even creepier by him only having one eye oh my god (laughs) just crawling towards that is terrifying like some george romero creation oh god like a little kamikaze soldier (laughs) yeah like a stan winston effect oh man is anna a good person she's very um she's doing everything to please other people you know she does this weird general anesthetic thing yeah to where basically she takes all her clothes off and lies on the bed and pretends to be knocked out so that Stephen can ravage her Mm. um so she does that and you know it she has this feeling of a a suburban mom who's just trying to do right by her family yeah she's clearly not happy she's always she doesn't come first she's basically last in the pecking order in the family and like she kind of flips when she finds out that Stephen and Martin's mother Alicia Silverstone have been having like not even a thing just that they had a meeting they talked you met her once didn't he yeah but Martin kind of planted this seed of an idea that they're having an affair and she flipped because she's kind of like in her in her mind she's like I've done everything for you and now you've gone off with this other woman kind of thing Mm. So I don't know. Is she? I don't know if she's a good person or not. It's undeniable she loves her kids. Yeah. Undeniable. You know, she's fighting for them at the hospital, um, even in the face of just this baffling illness. In the same way that 
uh, Chris McNeil in The Exorcist would fight mm. for Regan. Yeah. She she needs information, so she she wanks off that creepy little mm. man. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't offer herself to be killed in place of her no. kids. And in fact, she actually says the best course of action is to kill a child. Yeah. As we could always have another another child. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So could this film be seen in part as a tragedy, the tragedy of Anna? I I kind of thought that maybe Stephen would kill himself and therefore thereby kind of redeem himself. Um, But it was kind of unclear if that would actually redeem the family I think he's too selfish. Yeah. He never apologises. He can't take responsibility. Mm. he can't even take responsibility for a patient that that has died yeah and it's almost the fact that he's started this strange quasi father quasi son relationship with martin Mm. seems to be not out of any altruistic motivations he's not thinking oh well i offed his dad i best make amends i think it's more that he doesn't want any trouble he doesn't want Mm. martin um complaining to the hospital and potentially ruining Stephen's life. It seems yeah. very self-serving. Yeah. And Anna says, oh, there's no point going to the police. And it's like, um, I think that's absolutely what you should do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if it's her tragedy or not. I think it's the whole thing is a tragedy. It's literally based on a Greek tragedy. Why does Anna stay with Stephen? Well, it's, it's the whole suburban family thing, surely. She's she's fulfilling this pre-ordained role as the mother of the family. She's kind of She kind of has to. There's no other option in this setup. So she's trapped. Yeah, definitely. But almost like by her own choice. But she lets Martin go. By letting yeah. Martin go, doesn't she jeopardise everything? I think, does she not let him go in order to force Stephen to make a choice? To force him to actually kind of play his part in this scenario you know because then she says oh we could have another kid (laughs) which is terrible (laughs) just like that but but is she not forcing his hand slightly because if as long as they've got martin tied up stephen has a sense of being in control of the situation even though he clearly isn't so by letting martin go he she stephen has to step up and do something it's an interesting read i've never thought of that is anyone likable in this film Alicia Silverstone. <laughs> She's so desperate. <laughs> Do you see a lot of yourself in her? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Nobody was likable. The film really holds you at a bit of a distance. And I found mm. it difficult to really care for any of them, particularly because of the, the stylistic choice of they don't really speak or behave like human beings. They're, it's so bizarre it's like watching aliens acting out it was actually it made me think of last weekend i watched a film called troll 2 which is kind of infamously one of the worst films ever made but actually i'm really glad that i watched it before watching the killing of a sacred deer because a lot of the dialogue in troll 2 is it's written by an italian writer and so the dialogue feels oddly formal and stilted because it hasn't got that kind of casual flow Mm. of a native English speaker. So, you know, there's a really hilarious scene where the teenage girl's boyfriend comes into her room and she says, oh, I'd like you to come away with us on our holiday or something. And then 
tomorrow and he's like okay I would really like to come along tomorrow on the holiday and she's like okay fine I'll I'll tell my parents that you're going to be coming on our holiday tomorrow and it's it's weirdly similar to the the dialogue in Killing of a Sacred Deer but the performance is elevated obviously I think Bob is the only likable character he's the most innocent Mm. everyone else is so self-serving they all want something from someone else or they're incapable of connecting but Bob just seems to want to be friends with people. He wants to have that connection. So mm. it's it's a tragedy that he's the one that dies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I, I was thinking if if Nicole Kidman and I got shot, it would be like, yeah, okay, well, at least the kids are alive. If if Kim, the daughter, got shot, it'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of the, the, the least bad of the two children options because <laughs> she's older. Which is all equally weird. Kim was a dick. Yeah, she she conspires with Martin to try to save herself. Yeah. And he refuses. Which makes him an even bigger dick. But even at the end, once yeah. Bob is dead and they're in that cafe and Martin mm. walks in, she's given, she's not giving him the eye, but in the context of this film, yeah, mm. she's given him the eye in as much as a indifferent character can. I found that really difficult to decipher what she was actually sort of communicating with that look because she drenches her fries in blood, mm. which clearly is significant and a metaphor. Um, and then she kind of slowly eats the ketchup drenched chips. A bit like how you eat chips, actually, Rob, <laughs> with drenched in ketchup. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, is she by eating by eating this kind of symbolic bloody food, is she saying, I still want you? To, to martin or is she saying i'm gonna fucking kill you no i think she definitely wants him because she was mm. saying let's run away yeah so she was trying to save herself yeah. she doesn't care even at one point she's saying like oh let me be the one to atone for your sins when he's cleaning her knees he she is offering herself mm. but it's it's just so confusing because her behavior suggests no i want to be saved I, I take Bob or you yeah. by running away with Martin. Very, very confusing. Very confusing. But so, so why does she crawl halfway down the street? Is that trying to her trying to escape? I think so. Her dad. Maybe. I mean, why does he leave it to chance? Why does Stephen leave it to chance to see who will die? Why can't he make that decision? Well, because he can't expect responsibility for anything. He'd rather shoot 50 lamps <laughs> and then, you know, might ricochet off and kill one of them. He completely removes all responsibility from himself. Did the neighbours not hear the shooting? I know. Did they not wonder where Bob is? Oh, Bob moved. Bob moved away. Do you think that that by removing the responsibility, you know, by spinning around with it blindfolded to just shoot at random... Is he doing that because he loves all three of them so much that he can't choose? Or is he doing that because he's never able to accept responsibility for anything and therefore he won't make a choice? He just has to leave it to to random chance. I think it's because he can't accept responsibility. He doesn't seem to display any sort of love throughout the whole film. He's very selfish. Even when Martin hugs him, he can't hug Martin. The hand mm. comes up, pats, and goes back down. Mm. And he's not very sympathetic towards Bob when Bob... No. You know, if, if your kid says to you, I can't stand up. Yeah. He just stared yeah. at him. Yeah. And I know it's all... It's a very affectation movie where 
you know, the, the acting style is a particular way of acting. It's very removed, but even in the context of that, there's nothing, I can't read it as, he's. there's no concern. No. No, because he tells him three times, get up and go to school. He tries yeah. to ram a donut down. You would eat this. When they get back, I want to see all the donuts eaten. Yeah, and it's not because he accent. wants to make sure that his son is eating and therefore sort of sustaining himself and staying alive. He's doing it because if Bob dies, everyone's going to be looking at Stephen and saying, why? But then no one is, By it seems. It's almost like Bob just got scrubbed out at the end of the film and Stephen isn't held accountable for anything. Maybe it's a doctor thing. Maybe they're just so used to not taking responsibility because then they can get sued. Which is yeah, how we true. got into the first, which how we got into the, the problem in the first place. How yeah. do you feel about the um, the visual style? Sort of the wide Beautiful. lenses, the slow mode, the tracking and the creeping in. It's very unnerving. The camera's always up, looking down. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. And yeah, the, the, the high camera in a lot of shots almost felt like CCTV footage, like something mm. is observing them. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's the point. They're being judged by this higher power that Martin yeah, I think, is embodying. I think it's sort of that, that mm. there's something at play there's something looking down on them and it's martin yeah. essentially or it's us we're looking down and judging them as well yeah. you know we're watching the film so did you make judgments i didn't actually i don't think i did i think i was just a bit like that's a really horrific um setup and actually weirdly i just finished reading a book by paul tremblay called cabin at the end of the world which has a very similar um mor- moral choice that parents have to make about how to avert the end of the world yeah it's like do they kill their child or do they kill one themselves um it's weird that i just watched them basically back to back or read and watched what did you think about the the humor like did the film make you laugh yeah i think it's just just strange strange things like um our daughter's just started menstruating (laughs) or when bob falls off the bar uh, when bob falls off the bed or when he's like talking about the spaghetti. Yeah. My favourite line is when uh, Bob's uh, Bob's eyes start to bleed and Anna's like proper teen girl like, Mom, Dad, Bob's dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mom, Dad, Bob's dying. <laughs> yeah. Like he's just I mean, falling it does over. Feel, it does feel a bit at times sort of 90s teen comedy, like a John <laughs> Hughes in those moments. A bit Sophia Coppola, actually. Yeah. In a in a stylish bedroom, talking Almost about like the, menstruating. The bling ring. Yeah. Did I say it right? The bling ring. The bling ring. Yeah. I've you never said it got right that right. Yeah, I know. It's because you stop worrying about it so much. You know, they made this right after Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell had just finished um, the Beguiled, and then they did oh, this. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. So they were like, "Oh, all right, doing another miserable film together." <laughs> the Beguiled. Go and listen to that episode. Do you think this, this is the most Greek American film? Well, by definition, I think yes. <laughs> I'm not that au fait with Greek cinema outside of Yorgos Lanthimos and My Big Fat Greek Wedding. There's such overt Hellenic overtones to the film. You know, there's the, it's Pandemic. all about the relationship. Hellenic. Hellenic? Yeah, like the relationships between men. Um, and you know Hellenic uh, culture in ancient Greece was was all about sort of older men 
raising younger men and it was all like you know free free love and all that kind of stuff um and that absolutely is a huge element of the killing of a sacred deer you know when you first meet Stephen and martin you're like what the hell is this relationship like is he grooming him are they going (laughs) off to a motel together and then when they don't go off to a motel together it's that's actually a surprise (laughs) they just actually sit on the hood of his car and look out across the river but he was being groomed but it was martin grooming Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. It was like a complete flip of that that a idea. Flip, because it's not yeah, a paedophile film at all. It's whatever the opposite of a paedophile film is. Yeah, what's the, what's like the Latin term for being old? Um, I haven't really studied Latin since ever. <laughs> it's an OAPophile. <laughs> oh, um, yes. No, I do know what this word is because. I oh, it's like geriatric, geriatrophile or something like that. No, no. Um, I photographed a 93-year-old gay guy who referred to his 50-year-old husband saying mm. he is into, and he said the word, but I can't remember what the bloody word is. I'm going to Google it. Of, of old people file. Gentrophilia. Is it gentrophilia? Is that not when they take old buildings and turn them into Starbucks? No, is the primary sexual attraction to the elderly, derived from the Greek, geron, meaning old person. There you go. Well, you've been listening to Tornstab's Word of the Day. <laughs> Stephen Fry's on the next week's episode. <laughs> God. That's quite interesting. We, we don't have to worry. That was The Killing of a Sacred Deer, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in the next episode. In the next episode, there's going to be a goat. I thought we just slipped into like kids' TV territory. (laughs) And if you look through the square window, children, you'll see a fucking goat. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast so you don't miss that episode. Joshua, how can people get hold of us if they so wish? Well, do you know what? We're actually on this thing called Twitter, at Tornstar's Pod. Apparently, it's the place to be. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Apparently, it's the place to be. We are off to eat spaghetti in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. Heartbreaking. Exactly the same way. Makes me really sad. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut. We're gonna let it burn, 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 burn. We can light it up, 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 so they can put it out, out.